This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. How is the gloved wang? Uh, I'm good. Have you been fishing on a night? Uh, I ha- well, I've had some. I have had some days off this week. In fact, this is I uh, was off Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and went to the beach and um, took advantage of Rishi Sunak's uh, uh, eat out to help out scheme and took my youngest for a very healthy KFC, which was right. super super cheap. Um, other fried chicken outlets are available, although we are happy to endorse KFC if they'll give us some money. Um, and that was that was that was lovely. Fit in with Boris Johnson's obesity agenda, by the way. Well, my my youngest is a very healthy young man who um, who uh, didn't probably need to worry too much uh, for the time being. I, however, perhaps probably do a little bit more. So yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm hoping that I won't be a fatty in my fifties, um, but they are approaching a writ of knots so i, I probably best, need to the best people are richard i would say yes what, what yes podcast we had last week by the way it was a fantastic podcast last week and i listened back and, and, and apologies that my sound is a bit rubbish and i am again we did promise that we would be face to face this week steve that sadly for for circumstances beyond our control could not happen so yeah. i am still in my underground bunker uh, dear listener so please do bear with us on that but the pod last week i thought was i think it might well have been the best one we've ever done actually um i thought it was it was 
one to be proud of and uh and and that was all down to us and nothing to do with the guests that we had on no nothing to do with them especially in dunt oh yes dunt yeah yeah. it sounds like cockney rhyming slang that doesn't it well i'm sure he's heard that bit that one before (laughs) but he has been in viz so yeah he's a wonderful man a wonderful man and he was a fantastic um addition to the pod last week and we'll get him on again as soon as possible um, and lots of love on Twitter for that. So thank you so much, guys, for um, for reaching out. And please um, do tell us how brilliant we are on Twitter. If you don't like it, send send a postcard or something. And We've got another guest um, this week, haven't we? Um, we have. With us. We've got Peter Gagan. That's right. Peter Gagan uh, will be with us um, after we've done the sort of news roundup. Um, and then, of course, as always, we will get to a uh, Brexit of the week. Um, I know a lot of you come here for your news. I think we kind of saw maybe in the future we can get back to just coming here for your news. But for the time being, still check in, I think, uh, with some other news outlets. Um, perhaps the European website would be a good place to start. Um, it's got bags of readers and lots of good content, so that is a good place to start. And, of course, the printed product, uh, we'll tell you a bit more about that later. But uh, Steve, um, what have your what have your reflections on the week been this week? Well, I mean, in terms of the news, it seems to me that we've spent 150 million quid on masks that don't work. The track and trace program is a total fiasco. The oven ready deal is a farce. The honour system is a sick joke. And the prime minister has told everyone to go back to their offices, but now he's left off to, to check us. And the result of all of that is that the Conservatives are up three points in the polls to 44% and Labour is down two to 35%. And I'm not really sure how this works uh, anymore. But there very you go. Odd one. Very odd one, that. And I have to say, when... So I think it would be uh, on Monday morning, lobby journalists get an email which basically tells you what the government business of the week is. And it said uh, Boris Johnson would be working from checkers. And I was a bit like, eh. That's a, strange, that's a strange choice, Mr. Johnson. Yeah. Everyone back to work apart from me. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as weird, isn't it, as the KFC um, uh, and then the obesity thing that we were talking about earlier on. Uh, there you go. The, I mean, the other thing that which has caught everybody's eye this week, obviously, is, well, it is, um, well, let me ask you, what is the most disastrous interview of all time? Is it Spud's job interview in train spotting. Oh, well, I've got a view on that, but go on. Emily Maitlis against Prince Andrew. Is it Meg Ryan on Parkinson? Or or is it Jonathan Swan interviewing Donald Trump for Axios, which I'd never heard of before. It sounds like a bank, doesn't it? Or some kind of indigestion <laughs> remedy. But apparently it's... it's yeah, I mean, um, I have full disclosure, I have only seen reports of this. I've not actually seen it because I said... I've been trying to spend some time at the beach this week, um, which I have, and I've enjoyed. Um, but I, one, uh, do you remember the Bee Gees on the Clive Anderson show? That was good. Yes. That was brilliant. And, they, uh, and two of them walked off and one stayed. Um, that was all down to a, a sort of bad joke that Mr. Anderson told about them being called the Tosters or something, wasn't it? It was hilarious, but they took it very personally. And, um, yes, and stormed off. He always be the Tossers to me, didn't he? And yeah. <laughs> Was there, was there an element of that being staged, do we think, to get a bit of publicity for the... I, I honestly don't think so, because I think if you, if you go on YouTube and watch it, I think Clive Anderson is actually a bit, like, shocked and didn't really know what to do. I don't think so. I think they just... Taken aback, yeah. I think they were, they were, they were one of those uh, bands that had been around a long time at that point and probably thought a lot of themselves, or certainly Barry, 
Barry thinks a lot of himself, I think, is what he I would did. say. My, um, my friend Howard Johnson interviewed Barry Gibb in, um, I think it was in the mid mid to late 1990s, and he interviewed him at his palatial residence, Barry Gibb's palatial residence, not Howard Johnson's palatial residence, by the way, um, in Miami Beach, I think it was, and... Um, he had some Howard had some quite sophisticated recording equipment with him because I think they'd had this amazing idea that this interview would be recorded and um, you know there would be some kind of you'll be able to listen to it online or something like this or maybe in a free CD that came with whichever music magazine it was at the time. Anyway, he um, he um, started the interview. Barry Gibbs started talking. There was an awful whistling noise that came up when he was checking the, the, whether everything was recording properly. And um, he said, sorry, we just have to start this again. Um, started again, asked the same question. Barry Gibbs gave the, started to give the same answer. Howard said, that's, that's great. Let me just check it again. Awful whistling noise again on the tape. And, and he said, I'm sorry, there's, there's something wrong with my equipment, Barry. There's, there's an awful whistling noise. And Barry Gibbs said, no, that's my new teeth. I had them put in earlier this week and they've been, they won't stop whistling. I'm going back to the dentist on Monday. So, um, so there you go. It sounds a bit like, um, like this podcast, but there's no new teeth here. There's just an awful whistling noise. Um, I've also got to tell you that um, I am here in the underground, uh, sorry, in the underwater bunker. And uh, I learned this morning that I would be having no water between the hours of nine and five. Um, I've literally just before this podcast, dashed about a mile up the road to have a pee in the local Morrison's. Um, and come back. you do it in? We- <laughs> yes. <That> food. <laughs> yeah, cause I put some cat litter down first, though. And, <laughs> and, um, and also, there, is, there has been a man doing some kind of drilling outside. I presume it's to do with the, with the water, but hopefully we'll get through without having to uh hear him doing his job i can't really ask him to stop i could invite him on the podcast um but yes i mean what i would say is i've been involved in some pretty bad interviews um not as the interviewee but as the interviewer um you, you know you do have these awful moments um but i think usually it works out better for the interviewee interviewer than the interviewee um and i think that is probably the case case here as well yeah. And of course, Spud's job interview in Trainspotting, you say it was it the most disastrous interview, but let me remind you that just before he goes for that interview at the Leisure Centre, the whole point of the interview is that it's supposed to be disastrous. Yeah, that's right, yes. Uh, so actually, it might be the most successful interview, because as Renton quite clearly states in the voiceover, um, you do too badly, you lose your um, job seekers, yeah. or, or whatever it was in, in those days. And uh, and if you do too well, you get the job. Disaster. That's true. That's very true. Um, pleasure in other people's leisure. <laughs> much so. Very much so. So another thing that's that's happened this week um, is a, a great deal of noise over the story of a Tory MP, a former minister who has been arrested for alleged uh, sexual offences. People, uh, I think, need to know. They, you know, you're a you're a, a, a journalism a law expert and a, a legal expert to a certain extent. Why, why is this bloke not being named? Why has he not been suspended by the Conservative Party? 
Um, and um, why is it not okay that people are nudge nudging towards his name on Twitter and other social medias? Right. Firstly, um, to, to suggest that I'm a legal expert is <laughs> way out there and probably not the case. But what I am is really, really interested in in media law and um, loved learning about it when I was a, a cub reporter. And I think my interest and love of it has come uh, mainly from a chap called David Banks. Now he, I was very lucky. He is um, a, he was a brilliant journalist. Still is a brilliant journalist. But he was a journalist who turned his hand to, to media law and is now a sort of legal eagle. Um, and he was my law tutor. He went on to write the sort of eminent media law book, which is called McNeese. If you, if you really want to fall asleep quickly at night, then McNeese is, uh, is a book worth reading. But for a journalist, it is absolutely essential reading. Um, it's updated once every couple of years with all the sort of new legal precedent, etc. Um, and it is not ever very far away from any journalist worth the salt. Um, so uh, he he did a brilliant thread on this on Twitter. And uh, if you if you really want it in the most succinct and perfect way, then Mr. Banks is the man to follow. His Twitter, his Twitter handle actually is D Banksy B A N K um, uh, S Y. Um, he and he will always give commentary on any sort of legal issue with regards to the media. Um, so I'm going to sort of lean on him because he put it in a, a, a much better way than perhaps I can. But what I will say to you is that firstly, I was surprised that we didn't have a name, um, as I think a lot of people perhaps were. Secondly, though, there is no great conspiracy here. Um, there is no Tories leaning on newspaper editors. Um, I agree a lot of you will see will have seen the unfortunate uh, Evening Standard online headline which said 50 year old man or whatever uh, rather than Tory MP. I think that was just down to probably a, a, a naive and experienced reporter doing that and, and a sub not, not doing their job as well as perhaps they could. Um, the newspapers, the broadcasters, every journalist out there would love to name this person. And our argument for naming these people is that they, if they've committed an offence once with one person, a sexual offence, that they may well have done it elsewhere. So it brings other victims forward. Yeah. That is why the naming of people in sexual offence cases is so vital right at the start. And I will argue that until I'm blue in the face. However, <clears throat> uh, like with anything legal, there are often other issues in play. Now, firstly, let's get, let's get this out of the way and absolutely crystal clear there is no d notice or i think they're called dsma notice these days on naming this chap so d notices if you don't know are sent out to the media very rarely um but they're off they're usually to do with issues of national security um so during um when i was working on fleet street during the uh, iraq war and the um the violence in afghanistan we would get d notices about things and it would be a request not to report on a certain thing because it may put, you know, British lives at risk overseas, etc. Um, you simply can't put a D notice on the name of a uh, an MP. Um, if I had a pound for every time I'd been asked, "Is there a D notice on this? Is there a D notice on that?" I'd probably have about thirty-four pounds. Um, and that's not just, you know, people have got this thing in their head that the government can just blanket ban reporting on things. They cannot. 
Um, and that's why it's so important that we have a free press in this country and we don't have any kind of state intervention. There is no D-notice, there is no conspiracy. So, it, it, in, um, the, the, thing, the, the first thing probably to tackle is that the requirement to maintain anonymity of the complainant is absolutely vital when it comes to reporting on sexual offences. If someone makes a complaint about a sexual offence <clears throat> to the police, or indeed to anyone, actually, not just doesn't have to just be legally, but to anyone, they are, are required by law to have lifetime anonymity. That is That continues even if that person is found not guilty. The only time that might be lifted is if that person is then tried because they've been doing, they've, been, they've made this claim um, because of... Um, you know, uh, for, for malicious reasons. So if they're then tried for making a false claim, they would obviously be named in court. However, um, the, the, the sensitivity around this kind of complaint means that these people need lifetime anonymity to make their complaint. And the important thing, the reason that is there and why it's so important is because lots of people will be scared and perhaps ashamed about making those complaints. So, so it is... And, and if you then report it, it's not, and I've seen this on Twitter, it's not a contempt, it's not liable, you're actually committing an offence under the Sexual Offences Act, if you yeah. name them. Um, that is really important as well, because that is not a, 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 a media, a break of a sort of media law, you are very seriously in trouble if you do that. And this is a warning to any of you, if you do think you know who the person is, and you, uh, and you name that person, the complainant this is, you stand to go to prison, frankly. Um, now, currently, naming the MP, whoever it might be, and I think we've all <clears throat> perhaps seen some names, and, and that, that's fine, but naming that person may also land you in very hot water. Now, what may be going on here, and I honestly have not got any huge insight into this, but what may be going on here is that by naming, currently naming that MP, may well lead to the identification of the complainant. Um, Often you will see in sexual offences cases that have happened within families, um, the offender is not named in order to protect the identity of the complainant. And that is the most important thing, um, making sure that the complainant is not, uh, is not, is not widely known um, and is not named in the media. So that might be one of the reasons, and I think that is prob it's probably part of that. Um, a lot of people are saying that when ordinary people, ordinary people, are arrested for sex offences, that they're always named. That's not true either. No, um, it, the, the media will often get a tip off of their name, but you absolutely have to be 100% certain that that is them, and you also have to take into account, will it identify the complainant? So that's not always the case. It's not always the case at all. Um, the police uh, usually do release names when someone is charged. Um, some forces, however, have taken it upon themselves to not release that name until they've appeared in, in court. So currently we've got an arrest. We haven't even got a charge. Um, so so I, I would expect that the name probably will come out once the person is charged, but it's very dependent on the relationship between the complainant and the accused. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, so those are things that you've got to very much take into to account. Um, a lot of people have been saying, you know, footballers are always named, et cetera, et cetera. Again, there's some truth in that. I, I, I'm surprised that we, we don't have this name as it stands, but I am not privy to the legalities of it 
other than telling you what I can now. What I would say, and this is, oh, sorry, one of the conspiracy that we should knock on the head here is that um, it, Chris Grayling is the man behind the fact that the MP is not being named. Now, there's a mix-up here. Uh, yeah. Chris Grayling um, pushed through something which I'd, I wouldn't have supported, but pushed through something whereby he th there was a list of MPs that had been arrested or some such. He said that that was a breach of those MPs' human rights, and that list is no longer there's no you know it's it's no longer on public register um so that wasn't to do with this he didn't do that because of this he did it because of other reasons and whatever but um so that that is another small conspiracy theory that's not the reason we don't know the name um i think the main reason probably is that the police are nervous because of what happened with cliff richard and the bbc and um, the, the privacy laws in this country have been beefed up, and I think perhaps the police are not very good at media law. Um, and, you know, that's fine. I'm not very good at arresting people, I would suggest. Um, so I think that this is a nervous police force that perhaps has got some legal advice that um, they shouldn't do it because what happened with regards to Cliff Richard and the BBC, I probably haven't got time to go into that fully now, but if you Google it, you'll, you'll find out. And Cliff Richard um, won that case, obviously. Um, so I think it's a bit of that and a bit of the fact that the legal anonymity for the complainant is the most important factor here. I think these are two things that have come into play. And frustratingly, we actually may never know the name of this MP. Now, the problem is that if this MP goes to court and there is a ruling, uh, I can't remember which section it is, but uh, if there is a ruling in the court that they should remain anonymous. Obviously, the, the press would challenge that, but if it is decided that naming the MP would mean that they are very much, uh, therefore, you know, basically naming the complainant, um, then they may well be given anonymity right through the court case. Now, the issue then is that suddenly there's a by-election <laughs> and everyone um, will be able to find out who the Tory MP was without, um, you know, without too much bother. bother. So I think um, the, the, what we call jigsaw ID by putting different things in place and reporting different things and getting the, the other bit is, is going to be a, a massive issue here. But I don't really think that there's a great deal the media can do to get around it. I think that the courts will have to take that into account. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, it's fascinating and exhaustive, um, and I could, you know, I could ramble on about it for a lot longer. But that is basically where we're at. There, well, what there I think no is the conspiracy. I think is the um, it absolutely. Isn't the... You know, if if I was able to tell you who it was, then I would. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure. I've got some very strong hints, um, but I, I, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't. I, 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 you know, I couldn't tell you even if I wanted to with 100%, and I'm, I don't want to go to prison, um, uh, you know, on part of the Sexual Offences Act. So the media is, has got its hands behind its back here. It's got nothing to do with Tories leaning on papers. I can absolutely assure you that. And I think, you know, the other stuff about why hasn't the whip been removed, etc. well, that potentially would ID them, like you said, Stephen. I think that might be an issue that is in the back of people's, uh, back of the Tory party's mind. And I, I think that that obviously is the concern that's out there, identifying the complainant. And there, yeah. it is more important, as a final thought, it is more important that that complainant is never ID'd publicly 
than it is that the MP is ID'd, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, just moving on to, uh, moving on to um, more, uh, more re- regular matters, um, I don't know whether you've caught up with what Ian Duncan Smith has been saying this week. Um, he has uh, a, a series of three tweets, a thread of three tweets, um, which I think was on, uh, on Monday, uh, he is moaning about the withdrawal agreement uh, in Duncan Smith. He says the EU wants our money. They also want to stop us being a competitor. The withdrawal agreement we signed last year sadly helps them buried in the fine print unnoticed by many is the fact that we remain hooked into the EU's loan book. Um, and what he is saying is that uh, there are 160 billion pounds worth of unpaid debts in the EU's loan book, which Britain, in addition to paying uh, £39 billion for the withdrawal agreement, Britain might have to pay up for, for unpaid debts as well. Now, um, obviously, this has led people, people like me, people like me and you, people like uh, you, the dear New European podcast listener, to, to say, well, didn't Ian Duncan Smith, didn't you vote for the withdrawal agreement in the first place? And didn't you write a column in The Telegraph saying the deal was oven ready, let's take Britain, sign it, and let's take Britain forward. And didn't you even vote to curtail compressing scrutiny of the bill into just three days? And, and doesn't that mean that the fine print was overlooked? And I'm often, I'm often I'm, you know, I'm very reluctant to say this about people, but is, is, especially politicians, but is Ian Duncan Smith just not very bright? How does he not realise this? Um, well, <laughs> he's a strange politician, I guess, isn't he? Um, isn't he just a, 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 an odd bloke? You know, I, I cannot imagine why somebody who was actively involved, and there's a recording of him back in October, uh, even before they voted to curtail scrutiny of the bill, there's a recording of him in the Commons chamber saying, we've talked about this withdrawal agreement enough, let's just vote on it. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. What my what my dear mother would say is that he's a Wally. Um, yeah. The problem with this Wally is that he has a public platform and he has a bit of power, and a powerful Wally is a dangerous Wally. I would suggest. Um, it, it's 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 very odd. You know, I've never spoken to Ian Duncan Smith, um, and I've got really no urge to speak to Ian Duncan Smith. <laughs> um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm completely bemused by this. It is basically saying I didn't look at the fine print because I voted not to look at the fine print. Um, and therefore the EU are to blame uh, for me not looking at the, fi- the, the fine print. Um, I'm reminded of other great moments in Ian Duncan Smith history. There was a, there was a brilliant story, wasn't there, in, in, the, in the election, which I've told on this podcast before about a friend of mine's mate who, who um, was in her hallway on the phone and she saw a Tory leaflet being put through her front door. Do you remember this? And um, she t- saw a Tory leaflet being put through her front door and she went, well, you know, obviously I've got a Labour poster in my window. Why are they bothering yeah. with that? So she went out, she ended the call, went out the front door. Um, there was somebody with a load of Tory leaflets putting one through the door of the next house. And she said to the bloke, why have you put this through my door? Didn't you see the Labour poster? On in my window, and he said, "No, I didn't. But I didn't put that through your door in the first place." And she said, "Well, you're the only one here, and you've got a load of Tory leaflets in your hand." And she said, while she was having it, she put, gave him the Tory leaflet back, and only then 
realised it was Ian Duncan Smith himself. Quite amazing. Um, I, had similar, I had a similar thing with that um, leafleting with um, Chloe Smith, MP oh, for yeah. Norwich North, and um, uh, Amber Rudd. And they knocked. They were knocking on in a very affluent, lovely part of, of Norwich city centre. Were doing a sort of photo op door knock. They knocked on uh, a door, and an angry chap uh, took the leaflet, chased them out of his garden, ripped it up into hundred pieces, and threw it in the air, um, and told them they were ruining the country. This would have been the two thousand and seventeen election, and. That chap was Vaughan Smith. Vaughan Smith is the Vaughan Smith is a journalist and um, and very wealthy chap who owns the Frontline Club in in London, which is a, a sort of hangout for journalists and especially journalists who've been on the front line in war situations. But also um, housed in his Norfolk mansion, uh, Julian Assange for a little bit. Um, and I, I I I interviewed him afterwards, and he was absolutely furious about it. I then printed the story. And the Tories complained and said, that never happened. You've made it up. And I said, well, that's weird because he's a picture <laughs> of it happening. <laughs> it's great when they say that. Up after that, yeah. Um, that's good. I hope Amber Rudd said, Can I, I'll put you down as an undecided, which is <laughs> the, um, usually the, the politician's stock response to, to those kind of things, isn't it? Uh, to be fair to Amber Rudd, who I've got a bit of time for, she she very she just left the scene. She <laughs> just oh, fine. <laughs> she left the scene. Much yeah. like uh, with her political career, she left the scene. Yeah, there's no Indeed. more to say here, yeah. Um, Ian Duncan Smith's antics have reminded me that in... I mean... This is an extraordinary thing. In 2003, Ian Duncan Smith was fighting for his life as um, leader of the Conservative Party. Amazing, isn't it? It's only 2003, only 17 years ago. Ian Duncan Smith was actually the leader of a, a, a political commander. Donald Trump's the leader of the free world now. So, you know, it's no intelligence is no obstacle, is it? So, but anyway, in 2003, when... You know, it, the, the height of the Tory infighting was, was going on and he was uh, fighting for his political life and he was about to be d deposed. Um, he, 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 he issued a novel. He published a novel, not self-published. It was, it was published. So while he'd been Tory leader and in the time that he'd, he'd been in the run-up to this, he'd written a novel, a sort of Frederick Forsyth-style thriller called The Devil's Tune. Um, and it ended up being published in the in the same week that he was deposed as Tory leader by uh, which was in October two thousand and three. And there's a there's a I was reading some of these the reviews the other day, um, and there's a fantastic line in one of them because um, the vote of no confidence in him was held on a Thursday, and it said Ian Duncan Smith's book is out on Thursday, and so is he, um, which was fantastic. I'm going to read you. Um, I'm going to read you as an intro to this week's quiz. I'm going to read you the, um, the, the this is this is on the back of a novel uh, of Ian Duncan Smith's novel, um, and then I'm going to later on I'm going to read you three more, and I want you to tell me who the who the uh, the authors of these are. 
Um, but Ian Duncan Smith says, uh, the devil's tune, a struggling London art dealer is thrown what he thinks is a lifeline when he's given the opportunity of handling a collection of rare masters housed in a villa above the cliffs of Positano in Italy. There on the beach, he briefly encounters the glamorous producer of New York's most prestigious TV news program. Neither could know that their lives were about to become linked in a terrifying web of intrigue and deceit, controlled and manipulated by a powerful evil man seeking revenge for incidents in World War II involving art thefts, Nazi collaboration and murder. Isn't it strange, Steve, how um, webs are often uh, are often of intrigue and deceit, aren't they, webs? They are, yeah. There's a lot, there, there's, I mean, there's, what, else, what else is there? There's not also, a lot of you, pleasantness, is there, and self-affirmation. Have you read this book? I've not read it, but what I would really like, because because um, one of the reviews said, um, one of the reviews said it only sold 18 copies in its first week and it sold less than 100 copies. And another review, which was a bit later on, obviously said um, uh, no paperback, you know, the paper plans for a paperback edition were dropped. Um, and then I, I saw another thing, uh, which I think was by Rosamond Irwin, which was, a, I think was an interview with, um, with Ian Duncan Smith, uh, where she had said, um, that it was available for 1p on Amazon. And I thought, well, this would be funny, wouldn't it? Why don't we get a copy of The, the Devil's Tune and then we can, we can do a read-along in future podcasts. So I looked on Amazon and the price of The Devil's Tune on Amazon, there are four copies are available second-hand on Amazon, £144.95. What? Yeah, that's one, £144.95. There is one available for £612.84. plus. Jesus. Plus two pound eighty delivery, and then there's one available for one thousand two hundred and thirty-one pounds eighty-six. But if there are only a hundred copies of this in circulation, and they, you know, they've pulled the rest, then maybe it's a uh, maybe this is Ian Duncan Smith sort of Beatles butcher cover, you know, or is is um, is anarchy in the UK on EMI? It's uh, it's it's a rarity. It's wow. Uh, Which it's one did you buy then? Well, I've not bought one yet. I was hoping to ask the readers of the New European podcast um, if they have one or if they, if they can source one. Uh, there isn't one in my local library, um, but maybe there's one in your local library, or maybe you can order one and let us uh, and let us have it anyway. Uh, when no you said when you, the, the title is intriguing me, the Devil's Tune. Is this about having a sore throat? Is the follow-up, you know, yeah. Satan's locket? Or... Well, he would be, wouldn't it? Because it'd be very hot down there, wouldn't it? So he might to help him breathe more easily. Um, can I just whet your appetite with a bit more? Oh, uh, please. The characters in it, one of the characters in it is called Senator Ewan Kelp, which is good. Always named characters after seaweed. And <laughs> in the book, it says that he's 72 and he served with distinction in the Second World War. And um, whichever reviewer this was um, says that he's worked it out, worked out the timeline, and this meant that he won the congressional Senator Ewan Kelp won the Congressional Medal of Honor and a Purple Heart at the age of 13 years old. Uh, there's a scene where the hero John Grande, great names, aren't they? Ewan Kelp and John Grande. He walks along a street in New York. He drops his keys. He's just about to go into his hotel or something. He drops his keys. He bends down to get his keys. And then a gunshot from a limo, a drive, a drive by a limo, it just goes past his head. You know, if he hadn't dropped for his keys, 
um, and it narrowly misses him and it uh, sort of shatters a window uh, behind him. And a passerby says, are you all right, buddy? And John Grande says, yes. Why do you ask? <laughs> Why do you ask? Because that man's just been shooting at you. Anyway, um, so that's, what, that, that's, my, um, that's my appeal for the new European uh, listener. Please, can, can you source us a copy of The Devil's Tune by Ian Duncan Smith? Uh, and we will make fun of it on future podcasts. That'd be great. And, and you've got a, a holiday coming up, Steve, so you could read it by oh, the pool. Or... I can take it on the beach. I'm not yeah. beach body ready, but I'm... Be, I am beach ready for reading The Devil's Tune by Ian Duncan Smith on my holiday. Let right. me give you a little so, quiz now. Because a quiz? All right, just tell me what, what are the rules on this one? How is this going to work? The rules, on, the rules are on this one are, I just want you to give me the answer straight away. No thinking about it. I'm oh. going to give you three blurbs. They are all from uh, the back pages of novels that have been written by conservative politicians. That's your clue. Oh, all right. Uh, and you have to tell me the name <clears throat> of the politician who wrote it and extra points for the title, but that's not necessary. Number one, book blurb one. The American president on a state visit to Britain is giving a major address to a top-level audience in Westminster Hall. Ferocious security is provided by a joint force of the United States Secret Service and Scotland Yard. Then a stolen ambulance runs into trouble with the parking authorities. A hapless member of Parliament, having mislaid his crucial pass, is barred from Westminster with his bicycle regarded as a potential lethal weapon. And a man going by the name of Jones, although born in Karachi, slips through the barriers and a whole new ball game starts. So here are your clues then. Um, he, well, he's interested in uh, American uh, presidents. He is, there's a hapless member of parliament with a bicycle. Uh, there are international terrorists. This sounds like there's a bit of farce involved in it. Stolen ambulances. Who, who could have written a book like this? Do you know what, Steve? I think you've mentioned this before on this podcast. Uh-huh. You have right. Well, then, then I'm going for the prime minister. It's Boris Johnson. It's Boris Johnson. Uh, yes. He's called Seventy Two Virgins. Uh, here's another one. A little bit earlier. Sir James Percival, a cool, world-weary veteran of Tory politics, finds himself with a small majority after seven years of Labour rule and is looking forward to a quiet life. But life, especially in politics, isn't like that. His second wife and his disreputable son don't get on, and the move to number 10 leads to flare-ups that can't be kept private. The cabinet are soon at odds over Ireland, where a new wave of violence has crested out of a calm sea. Suddenly, in a matter of weeks, the government is fighting for its life, and the PM has sinister information that his own life may be at short call. Now, I, I've never heard the, the phrase at short call before, but let's, uh, let's have a look at that. He's, he's a cool, world-weary veteran um, of Tory politics, um, and he's used to, um, he's used to, to sort of flare-ups in uh, number 10, and uh, when this was written, obviously, the, the, uh, the, the question of Northern Ireland was still very much... Can, in- you, tell me, can you tell me when it was written? Uh, I can't because I've not got it written down. Well, I've, I mean, I've no idea. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm, I suggest I probably. Be, I've never read a novel by a Tory MP, um, to my knowledge. So I, I guess I'm going to be guessing on all these. And I guess the obvious one is to say Geoffrey Archer. 
It's uh, it's by Douglas Hurd. It's it's Vote <laughs> Hill by Douglas Hurd. One of three novels written by uh, by Douglas Hurd. Wow. Uh, Sorry, what what was it called, Steve? I think we missed that. Vote to Kill. A, a pretty good. <laughs> uh, not shoot to kill. Vote. Oh, to like Duran Duran B side. Yeah, miss. Yeah, that's right. Um, meeting you with a vote to a kill. In fact, uh, this is the third one. I think this is probably the easiest one. Elaine Stalker, newly elected MP, has worked hard for her election to, to Westminster, but the unequivocally masculine atmosphere of the Commons is a hostile environment for an attractive, ambitious woman. And <laughs> I already know. I already know. <laughs> Roger Dixon. The wheelie dealer whip provides a sympathetic ear for Elaine. At first, their relationship is strictly professional, but a shared passion for politics proves an aphrodisiac, and late night sittings offer ample opportunities for discussions of a more private nature. Does, um, does, I'm sorry, I can't, I, is it Elaine Stalker? Elaine Stalker, yeah. And I can't remember the name of the, the whip. The the um, the whip. He's called uh, I don't know. Is he called John Sargent or something like that? <laughs> Roger, Roger Dixon. John Sargent. <laughs> John Sargent. John General. John Sargent is an actual person. John Sally, it wasn't John Sargent. No, not the actual. He didn't <laughs> have the But I know what you're trying. I know what you're getting at. I think here, yeah, there's clues of plenty coming. Do, is there any point where they end up in the bath together discussing <laughs> discussing whether whether God is real or not? I think there probably is, yes, indeed. Okay, well, this is quite clearly Edwina Curry. <laughs> it is, and it's a parliamentary affair by Edwina Curry. So there you go. You've done well out of that. That's that's two, two out of the two. Well, that's guesses. I got I, I got heat on Twitter this week for being um, what was it? I thought it was unsportsmanlike. You were crowing. Yeah, crowing. That was it. I think. Um, I think fair enough. Because frankly, that was a tricky quiz, and tricky quiz. I definitely I got lucky on the um, on the um, on a couple of questions. I can't remember what they were now, but I got lucky in a couple of questions. And listen, if I win something, I'm going to crow. Uh, yeah. So I had no I had no opponent this week, but two out of three, as Meatloaf said, ain't bad. Crow away. <laughs> um, we're going to speak to well matt withers is going to speak to peter gagan in a minute isn't he and we're going to get matt on to to intro it i think um hopefully um uh, no actually we're not <laughs> we're doing on on the hoof podcast production here no i will be introducing it um i'm afraid okay. matt withers is otherwise engaged but is he uh, otherwise engaged doing the interview with peter gagan maybe i think is. Maybe he is, but Matt, uh, Withers is, uh, Matt Withers is sort of the third wheel, isn't he? Of the, but not in a bad way. He's like, if I'm sort of, I like to see myself as the sort of Dell boy of the operation, which obviously means you were Rodney and Matt. Well, Withers, no, I think I'm Uncle Albert. Maybe, yeah. And does that mean Matt Withers is Rodney, or is he? No, I think years? I think that would be unfair to to Matt Withers. I think Matt Withers is probably uh, Boise. Boise, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's had a good career hasn't he out of that yes yes did you not want to talk about the honors quickly before we get to uh i think we i think we do because just quickly because i've got a really good story to tell <laughs> well uh, i mean the honors were a disgrace whether they were any more of a disgrace than honors normally are i'm not entirely sure i know we're all upset to see um various brexiteers one of whom we will talk about in the brexiteer of the week um being honored i think that 
had Remain won, <laughs> won, then quite a few people connected with the Remain campaign may have been honoured. Um, I don't like any of the people who have been honoured. I've got to say, with with the exception of, well, Sir Ian Botham. I, I, I mean, I admire Sir Ian Botham as a sportsman. Uh, I admire him for his charity walks. I admire him for the great work that he does selling those foot spas. My mum's got, I bought one of my mum, my mum one of those foot spas a few years ago, and it really cheered her up. Um, so thanks for that. His wine, I've got to say, is it's not for me. Um, he is a connoisseur of wine, um, and uh, and I found his I found the, the both them own brand wine quite quite. Dist- I don't know whether he's making it in his maybe he's making it in those foot baths. I well, I like him. I particularly like him. I particularly like, and obviously Ian Botham heading the all that kind of thing. But my particular um, favourite thing that Ian Botham does is is tweet. Well, one of his tweets in particular. Well, that was the one that that was the one that um, I think made um, <laughs> made uh, one of his one of his um, comment cricket commentator colleagues spit their conflicts out. Well, and of course, the official it. line is that he was hacked um, yeah. on Twitter, and I think I, I absolutely believe him. Obviously, but that's uh, that's worth a Google if you're not aware of it. So, um, um, probably it not safe for not safe for the workplace. However. But none of, since none of you are in the workplace at the moment, then it's fine. Google away, uh, but not when you're homeschooling your children, obviously. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've met Ian Botham um, on, uh, I think I've met him twice, but I've met him, I spoke to him for, for 10 minutes or so once um, uh, when we were, a, a, a um, frankly, a, a media jolly together, and, and, and he was very nice. And so I admire him. I, 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 I like his charity work. Um, I thought he was a very good company. Um, he's obviously a, a genius um, cricketer. Um, what that, all of that adds, how that, all of that adds up to him, you know, being picked to earn 300 quid a day for the rest of his life, making speeches in the House of Lords. I've got absolutely no idea. What, what on earth do we, what on earth do we think that Sir Ian, I mean, he's already, a, he's already got a knighthood, hasn't he? You know, I, don't, I don't really understand, and I, I and I have an issue with the with the honours system. Yeah, um, is I, it that you've not got one? Do you know what? There's a lot of people in in journalism who that honestly, I swear to God, that is their ultimate goal. Um, my my view is that um, it, <laughs> when that letter drops on your <laughs> on your mind, it must be difficult to say no. Um, but I'm not a fan of the honest system. I, 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 I'm a fan of people going and having a, a, a jolly in the Queen's Garden if that's what they like to do. I've I, I have actually been invited to a, gar- a garden party at the at Buckingham Palace and uh, I turned it down. Just just frankly didn't fancy. I think it sounds rubbish. But but there are people who would enjoy that. But I think there should be people who are working in church groups in school groups you know doing stuff for free to try and make their communities better um and 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 i i don't massively begrudge you know i don't begrudge ian botham you know an honor or whatever or um you know a a peerage but i agree with you completely what is the point of that these people should be adding to our political world not um and i am actually a fan of the upper chamber but i'm not sure what ian botham's going to bring to it no, absolutely. Um, nice to see Arthur Askey um, getting a getting an, a, 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 a peerage just for being married to Theresa May. I thought that was cool. <laughs> um, well, do you know what? I've I, I've I've met I met Philip um, on a couple of occasions, 
um, when I've been sort of following Theresa May around on campaigns and whatnot, and he literally is the nicest man on earth. Yeah, um, okay. So I think fair enough. They are quite nice, don't they? But but I'm not in the House of Lords. Well, do you know what the House of Lords would be a damn sight better if you were, Steve? Good, excellent. Um, so he's a very nice man, is he, Arthur Askey? Very lovely chap. Yeah, really nice. And um, uh, and he and I mean I, I, I'm not as bothered about that one. I have to say, because I think he's actually an intelligent chap and actually might bring something to to the debate in the upper house. Um, what about? Uh, you have Jenny Lebedev, of course, who timing was bad when that naive reporter put the wrong headline on that story on Sunday just after he'd been given his uh, peerage. Yes. What do you think of that one? Uh, well, I think that um, I think that the I mean, it's I think it, the timing is extremely unfortunate because it doesn't half look that when you give a peerage to Veronica Wadley, who was the editor of the Evening Standard, yeah. uh, when Boris Johnson beat Ken Livingstone to become mayor, that was a, that was a bit of an upset. And um, I can't help think the Evening Standard was not a free paper at the time. You had to buy the Evening Standard then. Um, I cannot describe the, the manner in which the Evening Standard went um, in those days. And I don't know, you probably, did you work there at this time? Yeah, I was a, I was a reporter there for that point, yeah. The Evening, the evening Standard went from um, a, what I thought was a extremely good uh, operation, which was full of um, cultural information about London unreasonably politically ba uh, balanced to a... Um, I mean, it, it's attacks on Ken Livingstone, some of which were justified, were completely rabid, and its promotion of Boris Johnson was shameless. Uh, and it was uh, it, it, the, the way that the, the, the Evening Standard changed then um, was uh, was was pretty uh, upsetting to see. I thought um, uh, it was there was no semblance of, of impartiality whatsoever. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a looking back on it now and. Um, I know there's lots of conspiracies out there, but trust me, Veronica Wadley didn't sit us all down and say, we're going to be doing no, this. No, no, it's no. Not, that's not, no, it works. And I wasn't involved in, in the political end of the paper at that time. I was fairly low level at that, at that stage. In fact, I'm not even sure I was staff. No, I wouldn't have been, even been staff then. So, um, I mean, the whole Oliver Feingold thing was interesting. Again, we haven't got time to go into that now, dear listener, yeah, but yeah, do yeah. Google it. Um, it, but that was a brutal campaign, absolutely brutal campaign, and fascinating to watch, but really brutal. I mean, what what I'd like to say is that um, Boris Johnson. Um, I actually once told Boris Johnson to um, to, and we don't swear anymore on this podcast, really, but to f off in the um, in the standard newsroom. And what happened was. Uh, I was right on, on deadline. This is after when he was mayor and I was um, working on the news desk at the Evening Standard. And he came up behind me and said, basically said, what are you doing? And I was seconds away from deadline, just rewriting something. And we used to have these things called the write-offs on the front, which would be like three teaser stories, just rewriting that. And I said, I'm doing the write-off, F off. Not realising it was the mayor of London. <laughs> well, if only I'd just effed off. And he that said, marvellous. <laughs> he laughed and he went, "Oh, well, there we go," and just walked off. And I and 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 the editor was was with him, um, which I imagine was Jordy Gregg by that point. 
Yeah. Um, but, but the story I do want to tell, again, another Evening Standard story, and uh, I'm sure some of my old colleagues from Evening Standard listening to this podcast, um, and smashing news desk, really good bunch of reporters when I was there, many of whom are still there and still do a really good job. And the Standard, I think, is just as good a paper now that it's free, you know, I'm taking politics out of it, but just as good a paper now that it's free than it was when it was paid for. And I think before I tell this story, I should give some credit to the Lab Devs because they picked that paper up when it was yes, they did. hemorrhaging money and probably was going out of business from Associated. Um, and and Dacre was heartbroken. Uh, Mr. Dacre was heartbroken to lose the Evening Standard from the stable. Um, but they picked it up and they, and they didn't, you know, a lot of people said, oh, it's just going to be all pro-Russia and all this kind of nonsense. It isn't. It's got, I, I, you know, I worked through this period, absolute editorial independence, the man with two beards, of course, Yevgeny uh, Lebedev, does like to be in his own paper. Um, some proprietors are like that, but that's fine. It's fine. And I always found him, and I only spoke to him on a couple of occasions, but certainly around the newsroom, I found him to be sort of gentle. He's about my age, I think, maybe even a little bit younger. Um, sort of very gentle, very uh, reasonable chap around the newsroom and very... Um, very understanding and respectful of journalists, and I think he's got a bit of a, a thing about journalism. I think he, yes. he wants to. Be, I think he would have loved to have been a journalist. But it's difficult to be a journalist when your dad's a multimillionaire, former KGB agent, I guess. So he, instead, he owns a paper. He had to be. He had to become a sort of oligarch son instead. It's terrible when that happens, isn't it? Terrible. But they, but this one year we had a journalism. <laughs> yes, we'd had a fantastic year and we won, it was the year we first went free <clears throat> and we'd had this fantastic year and we won pretty much every award going and a guy called, I think it's David Cohen, did a, a great, um, wonderful writer and feature writer, went into sort of, sort of soft investigations and did a lot of stuff about gang culture and, and homelessness and stuff like that and for one of those long campaigns he won the Hugh Cudlip Award you could, uh, guys, if you don't know, was the legendary editor of um, of the Daily Mirror. My favourite fact about Hugh Cudlip is that he bought a parrot and taught it to say, buy the Daily Mirror, um, and it would sit on his shoulder and say that. And he, I mean, he's a fascinating, fascinating guy and certainly a hero of mine. But sort of brought uh, campaigning journalism and, and uh, you know, journalism with a social conscience to the tabloid press, an absolute superstar. Um, and a fascinating guy as well, and well worth digging out his life. So there's an award for sort of campaigning journalism called the Cudlip Award, very well respected, and David Cohen and the Union Standard won it. Now, often during those periods, on a Friday afternoon, um, Mr. Lebedev and the editor's secretary would, would bring out silver trays with champagne on for us all to quaff on after edition had gone on a Friday. Now, perhaps what... Mr. Lebedev didn't realise was that we had to get Monday's paper ready and there was another, there were slip editions going all afternoon. It didn't just go at 12, you know, but we'd all sit there happily with our champagne. And he stood up in front of the newsroom to congratulate us all on uh, a difficult but successful year. And he said, uh, and, and uh, special, special recognition has got to go to our award-winning campaigning journalist, Hugh Cudlip. Where where is he? Where's Hugh? Fantastic. And he got it wrong. He thought that he thought that this journalist was Hugh Cudlip who'd won this not he'd won the Hugh Cudlip put his name on the award already. <laughs> and of course everyone is a little bit scared of a new proprietor or even an old proprietor. So everyone just sort of stood there in silence, sort of quietly trying not to snigger. 
And he went, Hugh, Hugh, maybe, maybe Hugh is not in the building, but congratulations to him. <laughs> so we all had to give a cheers to Hugh Cudlip. <laughs> Fantastic. He'd only been dead for about 30 years. By that. At that point, he'd been dead for a very long time, yes. But he got a, he got a, a hearty cheers from me, of course. Um, David Cohen wasn't in the room, I don't think. So he, he would have probably put his hand up and said, I think you mean me. Um, and would have forever been known as Hugh Cudlip. Uh, but it was uh, it was a hilarious misunderstanding, um, amazing, which amazing. people uh, still talk about still talk about now. So yeah, again, I'm not sure what he's going to add to uh, the apparatus either. Um, but I I do I think he'll probably not add anything that bad. So don't worry too no. much. What I was what I was um, the, the reason for my excursion into Veronica Wadley was that um, um, yikes. I, was which is a phrase, yes, I'm <laughs> regretting. But my, my reason for, for rambling about uh, Veronica Wadley was that I do think it looks very unfortunate in the, the year before a London mayoral election that the uh, that the prime minister is giving a peerage to his mate, the the uh, proprietor of the Evening Standard, and is also uh, making uh, giving a peerage to. Um, to um, the editor of the Evening Standard who got him the job as London Mayor in the first place is what I was going to say. It's also obviously quite bizarre, isn't it, as, as, you, as you alluded to in the, the, when you were teeing the question up that the son of a KGB official a week after the Russia report, which says we think that they are trying to interfere but we've not really looked for the evidence, um, is, um, is given a, a, a peerage. But, you know, to be fair, Evgeny uh, Two Beards has already got enough influence in, in London and in the Conservative Party, hasn't he? So it doesn't really, you know, peerage isn't really going to buy any more, curry any more favour with him. No, uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to, I, I, I don't think we need to worry too much about the links between the lab devs and, and Russia. Maybe I'm naive, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a thing. What I would say um, is that the next time we do a live podcast and we can't wait for that of course if you guys come for a drink with us afterwards at the pub i will tell you my veronica wadley stories which i couldn't possibly tell you um on a podcast marvelous that's good <laughs> i do need to say just before we, we before matt uh, we, we tee up matt with peter gagan that the new peers will be able to enjoy did you know the house of lords has got three different own brand champagnes house champagnes it's got, it's got a um for 60 pounds you can have house of lord champagne and this uh this says uh that's just the ordinary brute champagne it says um this champagne has been selected for its elegance and good balance with the aroma of peaches pears and honey and i think that reminded me of that. all of those qualities are shared by jacob reese mogg um House of Lords Rosé Champagne says it's got a delicate pale salmon colour with wonderful effervescence, also like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and then the House of Lords, that's 65 quid, the Rosé. Vintage Champagne is 75 quid. And it says, uh, it says this champagne has developed great complexity uh, and layers of, uh, layers of taste over the years. And that is... Unlike Jacob Rees-Mogg, isn't it, who, who is, uh, has not developed any complexity or layers of taste whatsoever. Um, so there you go. So that's what the new peers can uh, can all enjoy. The most expensive wine, by the way, that can be drunk in the House of Lords, uh, and I'm sure will be drunk soon by in both them. Um, Chateau Lafon, uh, it could be Lafon Rocher or it could be from Rocher, uh, 2005. 
dense ruby colour, uh, much like Desmond Swain, medium to full bodied, uh, again, much like several Tory MPs we could mention, with ripe tannins and a long finish. And that is uh, £130 a bottle. So wow. probably in both of them's uh, lunch table, I would imagine. Um, should we talk about, uh, should, we, should we tee up, Matt? What do you uh, think? I think we should hand over to, to Matt Withers. So Matt is speaking to Peter Gagan, who's got a book out called Demo- Democracy for Sale. Yeah. Um, now, this chap is a long, long contributor to The New European, investigative journalist. That new book is about how dark money is warping our politics. And there's an extract, actually, in this week's printed product, uh, which you must go and get. So they're going to talk about the, the genesis of the book, what dark money actually is, and uh, the long role of money in British politics. Um, Mr. Gagan, over to you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Hello again, Matt Withers here. If you've got this week's print edition to hand, you'll see a very striking front page under the headline Democracy for Sale. And that's because we've got an extract from an important new book by the investigative journalist Peter Gagan. And I'm delighted to say that he joins me now via the ubiquitous Zoom. Uh, Peter, how are you? How have you found this weird past few months? And did I get your name correct? You did. All of those things um, are yeah, slap, slap bang and, and correct. I'm very impressed with the pronunciation. It's, a very, it's one of those Irish names that seems almost designed to confuse uh, British people and to cr- create all sorts of cultural uh, cultural double entendres and you did very well on that uh, I'm well thank you it's been quite a strange few months this book actually was originally supposed to be published in May um, and had to be held back because of the pandemic and so it's been really interesting kind of uh, timing coming this book coming out I was very pleased to see as well Boris Johnson did me a favour by holding off the Russia report until uh, just to coincide with the publication of my book. I know he wanted Chris Grayling really to, uh, to sit on the report forever, but I think, I think Boris knew deep down that, uh, that the book was coming out and it would be a good time to kind of raise the question of money and influence in British politics. Yeah, the times have, have fallen uh, very nicely for you. Uh, you should uh, props to your agent who sent me the, the phonetic pronunciation of your of your name. Um, tell us a little bit about the genesis of your book then. You talk in the extracts about the places it could have begun, but actually it started in Seaburn Metro Station on the outskirts of Sunderland. Yeah, so this book has really been about four years of research. You know, I work for Open Democracy, I, I work on investigations, and we spend a long time investigating, you know, all the roles of like money in British politics from, you know, donations to lobbying to the use of data but actually all of this work started back about two days before the brexit referendum in june of 2016 and i was a reporter i was actually working for the irish times at the time and i was in the town of sunderland or the city of sunderland sorry uh, ahead of the referendum to try and get a sense of what people were thinking and when i went to get the train back to newcastle back up to glasgow where i live i saw um, on the on the train a newspaper a free sheet the metro and there was a big advert on it that said take back control. I'm sure, you know, all of our listeners will remember that, the vote leave slogan. But I noticed the colour was slightly different. It was all in blue. And I looked on the back and it had the Democratic Unionist Party's logo and it said, paid for on behalf of the Democratic Unionists. I said, that's very curious. Why is the Democratic Unionist buying adverts, expensive adverts in newspapers in Sunderland? And I thought it was quite, you know, kind of thought about it, sent a tweet as you do. And then I just put the newspaper in my bag and kind of forgot about it. It went back on to kind of typing up my copy for the next day's paper. 
lo and behold, a few months passed. I started becoming interested in this. I started looking into it a bit more. I was aware that political donations in Northern Ireland were secret. So I was thinking, well, maybe this is a way of kind of funneling money to the Brexit referendum. But I didn't think too much about it until Adam Ramsey, who's a journalist at Open Democracy, called me. And he was interested in the DUP's money as well, because he had been in Edinburgh on the eve of the referendum and noticed lots of people with posters and placards saying, you know, take back control, vote leave. And they were all had the same imprint paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. So I thought that we thought that was funny. So we sat down together and started working on an investigation, trying to understand where this money had come from. And we discovered that the DUP had spent almost half a million pounds during the Brexit referendum, all in the last few weeks of the campaign, which to put into context, the DUP had spent about 50,000 pounds on the previous Stormont elections, a huge amount of money. But not only that, the money had come from um, a thing called a Constitutional Research Council, which sounds really grand. It sounds like it might have offices in a swanky part of London, but actually it doesn't really have any legal standing at all. And it really was just one man, a man called Richard Cook, who lived in a, um, still does, lives in a detached, uh, semi-detached Pebble Dash house on the outskirts of Glasgow, but had lots of colourful and interesting business links. So we kind of started looking at this and going, well, where did all this money come from? And from there, the research just kind of broadened out into the whole question of money in the Brexit referendum, Aaron Banks vote leave, and then the wider kind of issues around who and how are you, is it possible to buy influence in British politics. Yeah, you um, you use the phrase dark money on the front of the book. It's the kind of central thesis of it, I guess. But some people may be um, unfamiliar with precise definition. I mean, there's no legal definition. How do you define it in your book? Yeah, no, dark money is really... I use it to mean any type of money that is unaccountable, secret, clandestine, that influences our politics. So the most obvious way is something like that DUP donation. That's almost half a million pounds, which in British electoral terms is a lot of money. We still do not know where that money came from. You know, Mr. Cook, the Constitutional Research Council, has never said that the money is from him. So we still don't know. So that's, that's proper dark money. We don't know about that. Other types of dark money from donations are a lot of conservative associations and small companies that have almost no footprint give money into politics. Again, we've no details really about where the money that they're giving has come from. So that's a way of funneling money into politics without being transparent. But there's other ways besides just political donations. In the book, I look a lot at think tanks, which you know, sound really like really good things, independent research organizations, but a lot of think tanks, especially on the right of British politics, are funded by anonymous corporate money and really just end up supporting corporate positions on things. I write a lot about the Institute of Economic Affairs, for example, you know, and how really what these people are, are corporate lobbyists masquerading as think tanks. But again, that money is completely uh, secret. And one of the biggest ways I think that dark money has changed politics, because um, this phrase really originally started in America, which was looking at people like the Koch brothers, these oil magnets who were spending billions on politics. Um, so that was back in the 70s, but it's changed more and more now because of the internet. The internet allows you, I think, to even spread a lot more kind of dark money through the political system. You, know, you can buy adverts on Facebook and other social media platforms at almost no, uh, with no validation, but also the way you target voters, the way you actually politics itself operates has become increasingly opaque and, and I would argue dark. So the book kind of looks at those various different aspects within the kind of umbrella of dark money. It's interesting. You talk um, about the communications revolution, it, in part in the extract that's in, in, the, in the paper this week and how it's changed our politics in ways we're still struggling to understand. And you use the example of the Brexit party. Um, I suspect a lot of people don't realise what constitutionally a strange beast 
the Brexit Party, and I, I put party, I think in inverted commas, is stroke was. Yes, there's actually, there's a whole chapter on the Brexit Party in the book. I found them quite fascinating. And basically, you know, I, I try and trace the genesis of the Brexit Party, which was back in like kind of 2015, 16, and Nigel Farage was still the head of UKIP, but he kind of wanted a new vehicle. And he looked to Italy, actually. He looked to the five-star movement in Italy, which was the kind of um, populist, anti-authority uh, kind of new force in Italian politics. And what's interesting about the Five Star Movement was they used a lot of social media. They kind of created themselves as being, you know, the anti-anti-elite the as being this new vehicle. But also, the whole thing really was owned by one man, uh, John um, John Roberto Casaleggio. And Nigel Farage, Raheem Kassam, and, and Liz Bilney, who, who worked for Aaron Banks, went to Milan in late 2015 to meet Casaleggio. He died not long afterwards. And they really got this idea for the Brexit Party from him. And the idea that they got was that what you do is you basically have a veneer of democracy. You create this big movement, but you don't allow people to actually become members of your political party. So what's interesting is if you remember, if you remember, cast your mind back to kind of April uh, of 2019, ahead of the European uh, Parliament elections, which the Brexit Party topped the poll in, they were saying to people to donate money through PayPal to become a supporter, not a member. So the party itself is actually owned by Nigel Farage. It only has a handful of members, probably have four or five actual members of the party. Nigel Farage has a controlling stake in the party, can appoint people to the board, etc., etc., etc. So it's not in any way a political party in the way we would traditionally think of a party. It has this kind of it's what um, some people call a kind of like a sham digital democracy. So the idea is that you're telling people it's all open, it's all online, everyone has the same voice. But actually, unlike traditional parties, where actually members can often have quite a large voice, in the Brexit party, there really is only one voice, and that's Nigel Farage. And it was really interesting during the general election when Farage unilaterally declared in Hartlepool that they were going to stand down all these candidates. And you'd Brexit party candidates who not only paid to become supporters, they'd also paid £100 to, become, to try and become candidates, with not even knowing that they were being stood down, uh, only finding it out from, from the press. And Nigel Farage could do that because it's, the Brexit party is him. A final question then. I, I spoke to you off mic and said that I enjoyed the piece and then kind of backtracked and didn't, wasn't sure if enjoy was the right word. Um, why aren't we angry about this? We should be, as a, as a populace, absolutely fuming. And as it is, we get completely egregious examples, such as, you know, Robert Jenrick and, and Richard Desmond, uh, which on the face of it looks utterly blatant. And yet we, could, we kind of say, oh, well, and turn the page onto the next story. Um, we're just exceptionists. Are we, are we partly guilty for the way we accept this is the way our democracy is done now? I think there's a boiling frog aspect to this. You know, what I try and trace in the book is the emergence, particularly of Brexit as an idea almost, from the kind of fringe of the, the right of the Conservative Party to some, a direction of travel where Britain is going, which now has become the accepted kind of across the political spectrum. This is just, this is, this was always kind of where we're going. And I try and, I think that that's the thing that has kind of led to slightly kind of, we've become inured. We've become inured to these things because they've happened slightly slowly over time. But I would agree if you even just, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we had the Russia report come out that said basically British democracy is, doesn't function properly and the government doesn't care about that. We had the um, honours recently, the dissolution honours list from Boris Johnson, which he gave you know, party supporters, his brother, uh, Yevgeny Lebedev, the owner of the Independent, they gave them all peerages, which means they are legislators in the British Parliament, which should be, this is, they are the people who are supposed to be scrutinising legislation. And we've all kind of, it became, a, 
you know, a, a couple of people became a bit fulminated about it for 24 hours. And then it just went off. It went off the, the, um, the back pages. I do agree. I think there's a huge problem with that. What my book is trying to do, I guess, is by charting all of that, I'm trying to put it all together so people will stand back and go, oh, these aren't just isolated incidents. I think it's kind of tempting to just see it as, oh, this is just something that's happened. This is just an isolated incident and, and to move on from it. And I'm hoping by putting it all together, people will be able to stand back and see actually the whole system itself really is corrupt in many respects and needs to be reformed. The good news is it could be reformed without, you know, without, it's not that difficult to do. You could take the money out of politics. We could, you know, have maximum donations of £10,000, for example, which they have in lots of European countries instead of just limitless money. We could make joining a political party tax deductible. We could actually have some laws for online politics, you know, shock horror. We could find out what parties are doing online properly. These things could all be done if there was a political will to do it. Well, let's end on that slight hint of optimism there. Don't forget, you can read a chunky extract of Democracy for Sale in this week's paper, heartily recommended. That's on sale now. And the book is published by Head of Zeus. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Brexiteer of the Week. Wow, that was great. I think, you know, fair play to Matt with us. He's getting lots of love from us, you know, certainly publicly, privately, maybe not so much, but... um, Good old Matt with us. He's making this podcast better by getting more and more people involved, and that is what we want. Uh, Steve, that was fun, wasn't it? Tell us who you'd like to see on the podcast. You, you, what, me? Like who you'd like to hear. No, European, new European podcast ah. listeners. Let us know who you want, to, who you want us to, to, to get, um, and we'll get them in. Um, obviously, I mean, that's a bit... That's a Madonna bit. <laughs> or somebody like that, or Lana Del Rey. I, don't, I think we've got very little chance of getting them. If you Do you like Clana Del Rey's new new spoken word album, Steve? I've not listened to it, but I, I did um, I did enjoy her previous album very much. I thought it was very very Norman Effing Rodwell. Yes, brilliant F-ing album. F-ing Rockwell. very good. Brilliant it? album, absolutely superb. I've got a lot of time for for, for Lana Del Rey. Uh, Matt, could you get us Lana Del Rey on the podcast, please? Um, I would like that very much. We'd we'd probably like to do it in person. If you could get her to Norwich, we'd take her out. Take her out for a, a few bevies and maybe a burger. She'd like she that. Loves, she loves the North Norfolk coast. She's always in Sheringham. Yes, and a big fan of Chroma crab. Yeah, she likes the, she likes a crab. Yeah, so that's good. Um, shall we we need to. Of the week. We need to crown a Brexiteer of the week. Absolutely, go for it. Uh, numerous candidates this week. Uh, Tim Martin has, has taken my caught my eye not for the first time the um the tremendously tousled um uh weatherspoon ceo um he has got posters up in his in his pubs we talked about this the other week i think uh, and uh, posters in his pubs um boast of his new offers uh weatherspoon are offering what he calls sunak specials they say the chancellor is a legend before, for instigating tax equality between supermarkets and pubs. Those are all quotes. The posters have also got on them the logos of Camera, the Campaign for Real Ale, and SEBA, the Society for Independent Brewers. It's fantastic. All the pub, all the, the breweries are united in supporting this. There's only one problem. Camera and SEBA have both said that the claims in the posters are untrue. In a joint statement, they said, we hope consumers do not mistakenly believe Camera and SEBA have endorsed this marketing approach, which we believe is unhelpful for the pub industry as a whole it masks the truth that this VAT reduction will not directly in result in cheaper beer prices um, and it's another triumph of accuracy for Tim from Weatherspoons um, 
I wanted to talk about the Foxes, Liam Fox and Claire Fox. I think they're married. I've not checked that. But anyway, uh, Liam Fox, um, uh, well, the the trade discussion documents, the US trade discussion documents that Jeremy Corbyn leaked during the election campaign have turned out to come from Liam Fox, who apparently has been uh, hacked by a a sophisticated phishing campaign. Maybe he was hacked by the Russians. Maybe he was hacked by somebody else. Well, well, maybe, maybe it was me. It might have been you. I was fishing on a night. You were fishing uh, on a night, and, that and was... I thought, "I've got, I've got one, I've got one, I've got one." Stand back! Oh, it's a leaked document on U.S. trade, um, and it was it was called spear. It's called spear fishing, isn't it? Which is uh, not not what happens in um, in uh, sort of Robinson Crusoe films. Spear fishing <laughs> is when you send somebody. Um, a document purporting to, and you purport to be from Barclays Bank or something like this, and you say, "Can you just open this document?" And what that spear phishing thing does is then it sort of records everything on your computer and, and downloads it um, somewhere. And Liam Fox, despite all this sophistication, has, has become a victim of, of this, hasn't he? And it, it, it's now put his um, his job as as head of the he was going for the job as head of the World Trade Organization, uh, wasn't he? And it's put that in doubt. Although apparently Liam Fox said not to worry because to the WTO because I'm close to signing a trade deal with the family of a Nigerian prince. He had a hundred billion in a secret bank account, but he, he can't get into it since he died. Anyway, so um, that's Liam Fox. Now Claire Fox, um, 2015 May 2015 Claire Fox. Contrarian Pundit, Question Time, Brexit Party, Institute of Ideas, numerous um, Radio 4 programmes give her a a platform, God knows why. Uh, In 2015, May 2015, um, Claire Fox praised the Lib Dems, uh, four Lib Dems when they turned down peerages. Uh, Vince Cable, Danny Alexander, David Laws, Simon Hughes, all in the dissolution honours list um, in 2015. They turned them down. They said, we don't believe in a, an unelected second chamber, so why will we take peerages off you, David Cameron? She said, then, that is a rediscovery of democratic principles. And in July 2020, Claire Fox, who also does not believe in an unelected second chamber, she rediscovered her own democratic principles because when Boris Johnson offered her a peerage, in his dissolution honours list, she said, yes, I will do that. Um, And she has since said, I stand by uh, my course for the House of Lords to be abolished, and I will argue for them in the House of Lords while it exists. Um, So there you go. I don't know what what she's thinking about her uh, principles uh, about accepting £300 a day allowance, but maybe she's going to say that she's going to bank up Lords from within. I would, I would argue, I would also argue for an elected upper chamber. And if I was, if I was, Boris Johnson, I know you and your people listen to this podcast. If I was to be, to ascend to the, uh, 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 and get a peerage, then I would use that £300 a day very wisely to argue um, against the upper chamber, but just probably just quietly, I would suggest. Yeah, just very quietly. Shush, yeah. Um, and, but the Brexiteers of the week are not not the foxes, not the Happy Fox family. I, I, I don't. I think they are married, but I've done no research on it. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, I know these people are married. The, the Brexiteers of the week are the goes <clears throat> because I thought I couldn't see anything more stupid than this this week than Sarah Vine, Mrs. Michael Gove, but obviously a a, a Daily Mail columnist uh, and respected journalist. Um, 
I would suggest that Michael Gove might be Mr. Well, exactly, Vine, exactly. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm suggesting. So, so Sarah Vine, I thought I would see nothing more stupid this week than Sarah Vine tweeting, "We all have to die sooner rather than later. If I get COVID and cop it, so be it. My time has come. I'll have had a good life. I certainly don't expect the entire nation to bankrupt itself to save my." sorry ass and i thought well you know let, i mean let's i don't want to unpick the, the sheer stupidity of that this you know i'm sure there are quite a lot of people grieving people out there who um, who won't see it like that and know that their relatives in their final final moments uh weren't thinking well at least the nation isn't being bankrupted to save me anyway um, I thought I'd say nothing more stupid than that this week. And then I saw what Michael Gove wrote uh, after John Hume died. Uh, and he wrote, The passing of John Hume is a cause for mourning across these islands. A man of great integrity and wisdom who stood against violence and for peace with courage and steadfastness. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, is there, per se, because John Hume was all those things, of course. But in 2000, Michael Gove wrote a pamphlet. It was called Northern Ireland, The Price of Peace. And he compared the Good Friday Agreement, which John Hume played a massive role in, uh, in negotiating. He uh, compared that agreement to the appeasement of the Nazis in the 1930s to condoning the desires of paedophiles. He said the agreement was a rigged referendum, a mortal stain, a humiliation of our army, police and parliament. Um, and for that reason, uh, I mean, it's, just, it's absolutely amazing that Michael Gove just didn't choose to say nothing whatsoever. For that reason, Michael Gove is the Brexiteer of the week. And because we've not talked enough about John Hume uh, on this podcast this week and what a great guy he was, I will leave him, you uh, with something that he said when he accepted uh, his share of the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, which is, it is now clear that the European Union is the best example in the history of the world of conflict resolution. And that is something that Michael Gove, Brexiteer of the week, um, has taken us out of. Here, here, and um, rest in peace, John Hume. Uh, one of those, one of those huge figures in my. I was one of these sad kids who was obsessed with the news as a child and obsessed with politics and stuff. And just a huge figure for such a long time. I think in in a conflict I didn't quite understand, but was interested in because of my family background. So um, rest in peace and our best to his family and friends. Um, on uh, just just one last thing on Sarah Vine. Did you see that she? Um, she said that uh, most of our friends in politics and, and hacks, she said, send their children to private schools. <laughs> Did she know? That's I mean, that's nice. extraordinary, isn't it? Now, um, you can earn good money in journalism, but the vast majority of hacks, Sarah Vine, can barely afford to feed themselves, certainly in London. So to suggest they all send their children to, um, to private schools is, uh, is frankly a nonsense. Um, so congratulations. What the salary in journalism is, but you you wouldn't be able to send your you know you wouldn't be able to send your well, you're, 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 no. in many cases you're struggling to send your children to the school with a you know full uniform a good mm -hmm. packed lunch, aren't you? Um, that's amazing. But maybe yeah. they are you know that's the, those are the people that Sarah Vine and Michael Gove know. It's a very different case, isn't it, for journalists? And I would also say, and a lot of people would think that the term hack in regards to journalism is a is something is, is something of an insult but there are some of us who wear it as something of a badge of honor in a sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek kind of way sarah vine is not a hack has never been a hack and never will be a hack and she has got no idea how much hacks indeed get paid um steve what should the listeners do right now 
If you enjoyed this podcast, even if you didn't, uh, please subscribe to it. Leave us a great review. It's especially important if you're subscribing um, through uh, Apple devices. Uh, please buy The New European. You can hear, we can read more about uh, Peter, Gagin, uh, Peter Gagin and his book, um, Democracy for Sale. Uh, that new edition is on sale in shops now. It's £3. Uh, if you go to The New European website, uh, which is the neweuropean.co.uk. You can subscribe there. You can get 13 issues for £20 and you get a free Remainer passport holder. If you go to tneshop.co.uk, that's our shop, tneshop.co.uk, you can get, uh, you can buy face masks with a variety of designs, including the European flag, the message rejoin. There's one with half the, the Union Jack and the uh, European flag, a selection of uh, great designs there. Uh, please go to Facebook and join the New European Readers Group. Uh, and please follow at the New European on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter too. I'm at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Steve, you, you're, you're top brass compared to me. How many people do we need to say they would buy a T-shirt saying, little bit of no cheese on it for us to actually, you know, press the button? Oh, we need to do that, don't we? Yes. Okay. So t- let us know if you want to if you want some exclusive podcast merch too, and we'll get the ball rolling. You could. You we could, could have, have a Hello Snowflakes or a Snowflakes. We can have any design, any design you like. Let get in touch with us. Let us know what you would like. Let's get some pod merch out there for the summer. That would be fantastic. So let us know. Let us know on Twitter. Um, and do guys, please do do get us. Um, do hit us up on Twitter. It really sort of brightens Twitter up for me, certainly, because it's, it's something I'd generally avoid if you guys weren't there. So please uh, get in touch with me at Porritt, P-O-R-R-I-T-T, and, uh, and Steve as well. It's been a pleasure, as always, another great pod. I think we our sound might get worse, but don't worry, we're going to sort that out as soon as we possibly can. We've got the equipment. We just can't do it right now. But the quality is going through the roof, and listenership is up, up, up. So thank you so much. If you haven't already, go and buy the printed product. Uh, Mr. Jasper Copping does such a great job editing that week in, week out. It's £3. Uh, it's on the newsstands right now. Lots of politics, lots of Brexit. You'd expect that. But there's also lots of great culture in there as well. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, blow those bagpipes. Here you go.